Yeah, that was the funny thing with that interview I did. Like they record over Zoom, so I was just using my headset mic. So I was when I went and listened back to it, I was like, "Damn, my headset mic does suck compared to the actual good <laughs> mic." Yeah, it, honestly, it kind of blows out your voice a bit. Like yeah. it, if uh, people like check out the because I moved the we do the cold opens here at the beginning, but then uh, in the overtime episodes, I tend to move those cold opens till after the music because I want them to kind of feel like evergreen. And usually these like pre conversations are very much so time based. And so but yeah, uh, in that particular one in rank and file part two, uh, you had not turned on your local recording right away. And so you kind of blown out sounding. In, in, yeah. the out, in that in that piece but, but whatever it's still fine that's fine we're just uh, an experimental metal podcast <laughs> uh, you know where you do yeah. uh, you don't necessarily have to scream because we have digital effects and that's stuff. right i was we're gonna make a future. joke like cursing sennheiser and then i realized actually both my mics are sennheiser <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah we uh, just put a four track recorder in the room and hook no mics up to it and use just the internal microphone that's right <laughs> there's a drum kit in the room too i mean Return people to ask tradition me, <laughs> People ask me when they're like, they're like, oh, I'm starting up a podcast. Do I need like a nice road mic? Like, do I need Mark Marin's setup? And I'm like, nah, man, anything that will reliably record a guitar or a snare can be popped right in front of your face. <laughs> and all you got to do is talk into it, you know, directly and clearly without eating the damn thing. And you're good. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think the the most expensive part that people don't expect is the little box that you plug the microphone into. Yeah. Yeah. They wonder, like, I thought the microphone plugged right into the computer. And it's like, they do make those, but they, they're kind of taking you for a ride with those more often than not, you know? So yeah, I mean, welcome to Workstoppage, everybody. Your favorite podcast meta commentary and <laughs> uh, uh, cost evaluation podcast. We're entirely we're gonna, listeners. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to teach you how to start your own podcast. It's a whole new series, and we're going to waste your time with it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you're going to get run around pretty pretty often. Uh, so we're entirely listener supported. So thank you so much for any money you might be giving us on Patreon. If you're not subscribed to the Patreon, it's a great place to hear all of our evergreen content where we do our shop floor discussions and overtime episodes and all kinds of cool things. Uh, if you're not in the discord already, get in it. It's free. So, you know, if it's free, it's for me. That's what I always say. Uh, <laughs> and if you're a patron and you don't have your stickers yet, just message us on the Patreon. We would love to get them to you. If you want to help the show a little bit more, leave us a five-star review wherever you think it will help. Scrawl it on the back of an old record and toss it into the sea. <laughs> <You know? Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Along with uh, your uh, used car batteries. That's right. right. To recharge yeah. the electric eels. I still have to get this week's set of stickers out. I do not I usually don't get them out like, you know, the day or so after we respond because I, you know, I have, have to, to actually schedule time to, to go out to the post box, but um, I will get them out this week. So, yeah. yeah so for our first story this week, we're going to be uh, following up with the Richmond refinery strike, which is now over. This is so folks, you know, if you've listened to over the last couple of months, we've checked in a couple of times on this strike. Uh, these are steel workers uh, like the 
the USW, not just workers who work on steel, uh, who have been on strike at Chevron's refinery in Richmond, California for over two months. And they have now narrowly voted to accept a tentative agreement and end the strike. And unfortunately, just to get right to the heart of it, it doesn't really seem like the strike won very much. And it seems like Chevron mostly was just able to wait the workers out. Um, so this is going to be a new four year contract that workers have just has approved. We don't have like an actual vote count. Just, uh, the, the articles have come out of said it was a, a narrow vote. I don't have the actual numbers. Um, and the big differences between this and what they were originally offered back in March seem to mostly be that they're actually getting a lower ratification bonus. Originally back in March, they were offered a $2,500 bonus to ratify the contract and the new contract that they just signed, they only got a $1,500 bonus. And most of the rest of the details that have come out about it, which again, are not many, seem to mostly be pretty much the same. Because one of the things that we talked about when we first talked about the strike is that oil is one of the few industries where they do still have some pattern agreements. Like, so there are like multiple companies where there are USW workers all working at refineries for different of like the major oil corporations across the country who bargain on essentially the same contract, which is good. Like that's good. Like that used to be much more common and, you know, like trucking and the auto industry. And that got destroyed. We listened to the decline of American unionism series ago and all the history, but the reason these workers originally went on strike was that the proposed 12% pay raise over the four year contract, they're like, we're in an 8% inflation year. That 12% is going to get eaten up almost entirely just this year alone. Mm-hmm. And so they were asking for an additional 5% raise on top of that, but you know, didn't end up getting it in this new deal. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's honestly, it feels kind of bad. Like the, the, with the amount of repression, the workers were facing also with, I mean, USW not necessarily being a rank and file union. I think that there's a lot of different factors in here that, uh, led to what is partially a concessionary contract compared to even the original contract that was proposed by Chevron. Yeah. Well, Chevron seemed to have been extremely successful in this instance in doing quite a bit of strike breaking. So they did hire the local cops to come in and act as strike breakers. And then they also uh, managed to get quite a few scalps working inside of their facility, including 60 union members who crossed their own picket line, unfortunately. And even when you just, you know, not anywhere near a full staff, but when you do have experienced workers who, you know, violate the solidarity of their union and come work in the building that way, it really does help the company keep things running along. Yeah. yeah, I definitely when I saw that they had workers who had crossed the picket line, it really shows that for one, they were probably not they don't have enough uh, funds in their strike fund to make sure that the workers are able to still get through the strike. But then just to they're not building enough solidarity within their union. Uh, there's just a, a couple different factors, especially I mean, the, the company is the one that's really pushing for this this lack of of solidarity between the workers but also as you know union people it's our job to kind of push against that and i think that uh usw has a little bit of work to do in that regard yeah i'm 
the whole thing is unfortunate because and it's it, it there's a whole lot of factors at play here like exactly what you were saying like there's a there's been a lot of repression like we specifically talked about the use of police as strike breakers as you said scabs like it's got to the point that the USW did file multiple ULPs against Chevron uh, throughout the strike specifically for surveillance and coercion by the company uh, but yeah I mean overall it just mostly it seems like a combination, and again, this is with a little bit of, we would need more information to get a really good, solid, detailed understanding of like what went right, probably not a whole lot, and what went wrong, what could have been done better. But like, while I'm, there are certain things that I think we could probably say could have been done better that we could apply to probably most unions in the U.S. Like, as you're saying, like if perhaps if the USW spent less of their money endorsing political candidates for the Democrats and saved mm. that money in their strike fund, you would be able to pay the workers on the strike line more money and then leave them out there longer. And they wouldn't you wouldn't have this pressure or at least not as much. But I mean, we are also in the situation where, like. When you have the cops keeping your strike from actually blocking scabs from getting into the building and working as, as permanent replacements that takes a lot of the pressure off Chevron to compromise. And also I don't think we should like miss the fact that like striking against one of the oil majors in the U S is a really daunting task. Mm -hmm. Like Chevron is mm -hmm. in, in like insanely rich company. Like uh, it's, it's good that they struck here, but like, and not that they shouldn't have. It's the for the thing that is so difficult. I think with this is just that, like, how do you, like, you you got. I feel almost feel like you have to almost with a company this big and and this powerful and this rich, you almost have to have like a coordinated multi-site strike to be able to put enough pressure on them, especially given the time frame we're in right now, where the oil prices are through the goddamn roof. So they're and uh, artificially. So but mm -hmm. as well, like to the point where like, so every gallon that they're able to sell, they're making more and more profit than they were even just a year ago. So yeah. even if they, even if the strike re reduces production, that reduced production is still making more profit than uh -huh. they were able to make before. Well, yeah, because the price of a barrel is down and the price of gas is up and it's been right. this way for a couple of weeks now. And then this, like you said, like Chevron is an, such an insanely big corporation that after they lost that suit against Stephen Donziger representing those uh, indigenous Bolivian farmers, they used their influence in the U.S. government to ruin his life with the justice system for like two straight fucking years. So, yeah, yeah it's really hard to fight against fucking oil majors, as you call them. Well, and we, as we covered, I think it was even just last week, the amount of money that they were funded, that they were paying to yeah. the police directly. Mm -hmm. Like it was thousands and thousands of dollars per day that they were directly paying the police to act as strike breakers. Yep. I mean, the money there is insane. Well, and you know, uh, continuing on the topic of strike breaking, it's time to talk about a, uh, Apple store in Atlanta where the workers have actually had to withdraw their union election yeah. petition because they've been facing such incredible levels of strike breaking. So, uh, a lot of different Apple stores have been unionizing. We've seen stores in New York city, Maryland, Kentucky, and Atlanta all building towards their elections. And we're talking about the store at the Cumberland mall in Atlanta, which was scheduled to have its vote on June 2nd. 
but they the union has announced uh, via a statement that they feel like they need to withdraw their petition. Uh, they said Apple's repeated violations of the National Labor Relations Act have made a free and fair election impossible, and they also cited a recent increase in COVID infections at the store, which is a common refrain we've heard from workers across the country and the world, frankly. Yeah, I mean, with the with the wave of COVID that's been going on, I think that we're I'm surprised that we're not seeing more of of like, I mean, maybe we are, and we're just not quite seeing it. The just like the inability to collectively act. I mean, this reminds me of early in the pandemic when everybody was sick and the contract negotiations were put off and and other sorts mm-hmm. of things. I mean, COVID is a severe disruption to labor organizing, and this is a really great example of it. I mean, I shouldn't say great, a really like uh, apt example of it. And uh, I that's I think, in my opinion, is another reason why the United States doesn't want to deal with COVID, not just so that they can keep capital flowing, but because as the waves come, it represses the workers and makes it so that we are less able to organize. All right. Well, and Apple's response to all this is to go straight down the littler Mendelssohn path. I mean, they're an enormous company. Uh, What else would they do? And uh, they announced a new set of measures, basically borrowed straight from what Starbucks has been doing, where they want to give all of their employees a 10% raise, all of their retail employees, a 10% raise from $20 an hour to $22 an hour. And it's like, well, the fact that they're going to posit this is like, oh, we did this. Now you don't need the union anymore. And we technically can't give it to you if you have a union, whatever lies and bullshit they want to toss your way well yeah Yeah. like this is one of the most that's so that's the thing because we've talked about a bunch on the show how the starbucks workers united campaign is showing the weaknesses of some of littler mendelson's like playbook for union Mm -hmm. busting like they've come up with ways to push back against captive audience meetings they've come up with ways to inoculate workers against the stupid talking points that littler rolls out so there's been a lot of good defense mechanisms The one that's really tough and that I think we seem to really be seeing the impact of because this is like it's not just here at Apple where we've seen this like done because is this putting out of of improving working conditions and implying that if the you unionize you won't get those improvements and obviously Howard Schultz did the most like blatant version of this to the point of like committing Play obvious ULPs on it, an earnings call. It which was, was almost like an Elon Musk tweet in its brazenness. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and whereas Apple, I think from what I've read about this and, and reading like different stories from people at this, this mall and the, and at the other stores that are involved in this campaign, I think they're doing probably the, the way Littler's consultants would want the companies more to do it. Right. Less than the Howard Schultz way where the threat that unionized workers wouldn't get the the raise is more implied than it is necessarily explicit because once it's explicit, it's like, well, that's a violation of the NLRA. But if you just say, hey, we're raising everyone at the stores where we can give, like where we have control over them uh, an extra 10% just because we care so much about our workers. See folks, you you raised issues and we're responding. We, we see you, we hear you. See, these are the things we can do when we don't have a union in the middle slowing us down. And, as, and I know that this, you know, you know it sounds goofy and stupid to and we've talked about how bullshit those talking points are but i think that stuff can be unfortunately like pretty effective and we've heard like stores in some stores in the starbucks workers united movement that is like the one 
tactic in addition to like some of the really aggressive stuff that Starbucks has been doing like slashing hours that has it seems like really been able to turn some people from pro union to at the very least on the fence because people understandably worry they're like well they're talking about giving me a 10% raise and I do want a union but they're also kind of saying I might not get it so I don't know, maybe, maybe we just don't vote for it right now. Maybe we get the raise and we talk about it later. Cause like, that's, the, that's all they have to do to be successful. They don't have to turn people completely against the union. They just have to make you question it and think maybe now is not the right time. And that can throw a lot of like wrenches into, into stuff. And I, so I think that's probably from, from reading this and listening to the people that I, that's probably got to be like one of the most effective of the Littler playbook that, that Apple's rolled out here, especially Mm -hmm. when uh, this is one of the differences though, between the two is where you have the Apple retail workers also. And this is something we also saw in Bessemer where the Apple retail workers are paid a little bit better than a lot of other retail workers. And Apple can really lean on that in their meetings to be like, Hey, you know, if if things don't work out and we end up having to close the store, you might have to go work at, I don't know, Verizon or whatever and make $5 an hour less, which is again, an implied threat, not a, a, a like a, a necessarily explicit one, but I, one that could be very effective. So I really think these are the dynamics that we're looking at from the, from the store here in Atlanta that, that we're talking about. But also I think it's important to note that like, this doesn't mean that the drive in Atlanta is over by any means. It's a setback. It's an unfortunate one because, I mean, we were certainly looking forward to hopefully having the, the vote this that was because it was going to be this week and getting the first unionized Apple store. But withdrawing the petition will give the workers a chance to have more time to continue to organize and hopefully build up a big enough consensus that then they can refile because if they'd held the election and lost. I think it's what it's a year turnaround, I believe yeah, before you can file again. It's yeah. exactly a year. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we have a statement from the union where they said, thanks to what we started here in Atlanta, Apple will be giving all employees in all stores an unplanned raise. This is because of us. Our union predicted Apple would give us this raise since this same law firm advised Starbucks and they too got a big raise when they started to organize. They've never taken us more seriously than when we decided to join together and it should tell us something. Absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's frustrating and, and, and the union has filed ULPs against Apple because they've been holding, uh, Littler's, you know, favorite captive audience meetings and rolling out all the, the innuendo and untruths that Littler talks about in their, their talking points. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, this is unfortunate, but the, the drive will continue. And the union specifically said that at the end of their statement, they said, we're going to continue this fight because the union is us. We deserve to have a voice and a seat at the table about our working conditions and hoping things get better. Isn't enough. So yeah, this is unfortunate, but it's not the end of the drive there. And in addition to the workers continuing to organize in Atlanta, we've got stores in New York, Maryland, Kentucky. So we're still going to be following this because there's still like a, you know, I think we are going to see the first unionized Apple store within the next few months. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think this wave is going to continue through plenty of like retail and fast casual and, and on all kinds of workplaces that I think for a long time, people assumed like we're more or less immune to unionization, which is really, really cool to see. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, as someone from the retail union movement, I know firsthand it is possible to form a union in these workplaces. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard, and there are the threats of store closures and, and things like that. And uh, they're almost always unfounded, though we do have one example of where it did happen uh and it is clearly repression of the of the Mm -hmm. union movement at the great lakes coffee union drive which we had talked about a couple months ago where the where the workers had gone on a recognition strike they said hey we have a union recognize us and uh and we're going to go on strike until you do. And which is honestly a pretty risky tactic. We mentioned it, uh, at the time, how risky that particular tactic was. And, uh, unfortunately, uh, we have, uh, in fact, this might even be one of the first examples on the whole show, episode one Oh seven of capital flight where, where, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, they, they always threaten it and we've made it through, well over a year like a year and a half or almost on two years of this show this is the first example that we really have uh, of capital flight coming into into play here well so let's get back to some of the details so the these workers at great lakes coffee uh formed a union called comrades in coffee where well with unite here and uh they this was in uh detroit Yes. The workers have been on strike for over 100 days. Uh, They've been calling for boycotts of Great Lakes Coffee at other locations. And now being over three months on strike, uh, the company owners have decided to permanently close the previously profitable Midtown location, citing the fact that, uh, what is it, Eric, I actually have the quote, Uh, they are, well, I guess this is... um, is their lawyer from from the lawyer yeah uh they the coffee shop weren't making money and they couldn't find people that felt comfortable working there because of omicron and the customers felt the same way uh they weren't coming and basically like yo i mean everybody was on strike like (laughs) yeah i (laughs) you stop making money because you because you caused the workers to go on strike due to your union busting and they use they cited that as a reason for unprofitability despite the fact that all other metrics outside of the strike showed profitability of this business and them closing this location being actually one of their more profitable locations shows that it is direct union busting well Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the thing, because like, there's the, the idea, oh, well, the customers weren't coming because of Omicron. You have four other stores in Detroit. You haven't closed any of them. What, is Omicron localized to Midtown? <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> that just doesn't hold up over, like, f- five minutes of, of thought. about it. It's like, no, you, you closed exactly one location, and it happens to be the one location where your workers are unionizing. So- you close the store because the workers are unionizing. It's it's the obvious thing here. And yeah, as you said, like the only other examples of real capital flight that I can think of recently are like 
there was a Dollar General store that was going to unionize oh, in yeah. Connecticut. And I don't actually think we covered that one, but it was like, I was going to put it in the show like last year and that they closed that store. That's like the only one. Dollar and, stores are all, yeah, they're the ones who tend to be the exception to the rule on that because they are in every, they can just pick up and move to another location in a small community. That's literally their whole business model yeah. is starting new locations in, in, in communities. Yeah, no, I mean, their, their business models entire like every capitalist business is built on exploitation, but dollar stores are on, a, they're on like another level with that shit. It's, it's ridiculous, but yeah, so this is really disappointing, um, you know, for these workers, United here has previously filed a ton of ULPs against the company for violating labor laws for firing workers during the strike and claiming that the workers had voluntarily resigned when that was not true. Uh, and then now they've filed one for closing the store in obvious retaliation for the union drive. Mm -hmm. Um, and so while this is disappointing, like the, the workers did put out a statement saying, while great lakes coffee operates satellite locations, including Meyer Rivertown and Woodward corner markets, folks recognize the flagship cafe as the midtown location where most of us strikers work. We put our time, energy, labor, and emotions into that space every single day, serving regulars and new customers alike. It is disappointing, to say the least, that the Miracles, who are the people that own the company, and company have opted to go this direction against the very same group of people who played a crucial role in that cafe and the Great Lakes Coffee brand as a whole. Wait, the last name of the, the, the <laughs> family that owns it is the Miracles family? Yeah. <laughs> I hate that. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, it sucks. <laughs> Fucking Michigan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, they're really, it's hard to find a silver lining in here. Like, it's great that, like, these workers stood strong on the picket line. They've been doing active pickets at the other locations in Midtown, like, spreading the news to get people to try and boycott while they were on strike. And yet this again, just shows the, the fundamental greed of the owners here, because that's, I guess the one thing I would take away from this as a dick, I'm not really a positive, but like we can use it as an example because anytime you hear from any of these companies about, Oh, we're a family. We're not about, we're not just about profit. We, you know, we want to improve the community and give good jobs and just sell good coffee bullshit like all of the, these people wanted out of their store was to be able to extract as much profit as possible and when given the chance to keep making a profit but just maybe a little bit less so that some of that actually went to the workers so they could actually have a living wage they'd rather sacrifice the smaller profit to destroy that union and prevent their workers at their other locations from doing the same thing. So, yeah, I mean, well, it, but it, I think, I think that one of the other, like the real, like the real positive here that we can look at is that these organizers are radicalized. These are, these are mm -hmm. organizers who know why they are forming a union. And they said that they have vowed to not give up the fight and to try to unionize all Great Lakes coffee locations, <laughs> which is a really like great noble pursuit. And, and really maybe it won't end up in coffee. Maybe that's just their current goal. Uh, we all know how life can change wildly, but these are all people who are going to go on and create unions in many other workplaces. So yeah, I, I yeah. think that that that's something that we can look forward to from from these great organizers. Well, 
and and capitalists, uh, you know, they will they will pull the capital flight lever once in a while. But uh, this Greg and Lisa miracle are not going <laughs> to shut down all of their Great Lakes, you know, locations. Right. So if you try to keep unionizing them, they could shut down all but one. They're not going to shut that last one down because then they would have to get jobs. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> one thing that I do think would be cool because we have seen this in some other cities would be, and and this may have be, I, I think this some of this may have been a happening in the background here, uh-huh. but I would love to see some coordination between the Starbucks workers that are assuredly unionizing in Detroit and these folks to help each other mm-hmm. unionize both the Starbucks and the Great Lakes stores that aren't unionized. Because like you've got radical organizers at both places. Like why not pool resources, pool like energy yeah. and everything. So, well, I mean, hopefully we'll see some more of that well, coordination. Yeah. And I mean, solidarity and like working relationships between unions are one of like, it's something we don't talk about a lot on the show, I guess, but it kind of is silently one of the big things the American labor movement is kind of missing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and if you are, you know, organizing or trying to organize in your area, like, you know, hell, I mean, jump in the discord and see if there's anyone in your area that you can talk to. I I mean, like, obviously don't give away your tactics. It's not an entirely secured platform, but, but, you know, find some people to coordinate with. I mean, there are Starbucks workers. I mean, if you're in a coffee shop, reach out to Starbucks workers United. Like, I don't know. That's, that's probably at least one thing that you could possibly do. I'm just adding that now to my list of like, how we'll know if we'll, we've made it as a podcast is if we start getting like spies from Littler Mendelssohn, like joining our discord. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I do worry about that sometimes. I mean, we don't have a lot of, of tactics that are, are talked about. In fact, it's pretty rare, um, especially in the, in the public channels. But, um, but yeah, I, I yeah, do yeah. want to make sure it's clear to people that it's not a fully secured platform. If you do a solid intro and, and make yourself, you know, seem like a good person, you're likely to get access to the server. So yeah, I mean, just don't make your screen name Mittler Lentilson, and I think you'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So moving on to our next story, we've got another direct action from some folks who we've talked about a few times on the mm-hmm. show, the Amazonians United Workers in Chicago, who have staged another walkout. This one is to demand that Amazon rehire a recently fired warehouse associate, Rakhile Johnson. Uh, and this was a walkout of about 20 workers last Thursday morning, um, which was the 26th. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that I liked, they live streamed their protest, which is always a good way to get more publicity, more visibility. And you can, if, if slash when the company tries to harass you for doing a walkout, you got that on video. Always, always good to have that. Um, and this is at the, the DIL three facility, uh, just like in the Chicago area. I don't know if it's actually in Chicago proper, but this story is one. I feel like a perfect illustration of how much at will employment sucks ass because Amazon says that they fired this worker, uh, Mr. Johnson, for sabotaging equipment <laughs> by like Don't jamming me with something. A good time. <laughs> yeah, like jamming something in one of the conveyor belts. Like, which at first glance, I'm like, 
I don't believe you. <laughs> like, I don't believe that's a thing that actually happened. I think you made that up just to justify firing this guy. And that's what the workers are basically saying, too. They say that his termination represents, quote, a history and pattern of racial discrimination, harassment, and disrespect endured by DIL3 associates. They say that black and Latino workers at the warehouse regularly face harassment and racist comments from managers, which from everything else we've heard about every single Amazon facility that tracks. So uh, I instantly believe them (laughs) in contradistinction to what the company said. (laughs) Yeah. Like the other key thing about Apple's claim, and this is why I brought up the at will employment thing is they have no evidence they don't have, you know, a video from inside the warehouse, which I assure you exists. They have cameras everywhere because they are tracking the motion of every worker constantly. That's how they get, you know, that's how they keep their metrics going. Um, so, but they have no evidence of, there's no damaged equipment they've shown anybody. There's no video. Eyewitness there accounts. isn't even any, yeah, there's no eyewitness accounts from anybody. It's just the word of the management over the word of the workers. And because of this country's at-will employment system, the the company always wins in that situation, which really emphasizes why we need unions. Like, and, and <laughs> I and, love the and, statement that they made. This is yeah, such a stupid fucking statement. The, <laughs> we firmly reject the allegation of racial discrimination. This next part's where it really gets good. Amazon believes in equal employment opportunity for all employees and has a policy against discrimination of any kind. I, I'll, uh, anyway, Lie. Mr. Johnson was. <laughs> there's a policy. I love hearing that there's a policy. As Marxist as I've been getting recently, anytime I hear there's a policy in place, I instantly have raging anarchist brain where I'm like, let me see it work. Let me see it function. <laughs> Mr. Johnson was terminated for, seri- for a serious safety violation that involved jamming an object in a conveyor belt to stop production, which could have caused serious injury to himself or his co-workers like <laughs> thank you for reading that quote mrs Labans from bob's burger <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean again this is just like so first off they're basically like taking the original definition of sabotage to use in there where they're like oh just tell me he jammed his like wooden shoes into the line and we'll get all the way back to the origins of that word but like <laughs> uh, the this whole thing is sucks. Like the workers have said, yeah, like the workers who worked in the same area as him are like, yeah, that didn't, that's not, that didn't happen. This is not a thing. They're just making that up. And yeah, this, this shit really demonstrates why workers everywhere need unions. And, and also like why it's like the AL used model where they went through the NLRB election and everything is, is great. And we support it. And we hope that more people unionize with the ALU. But one of the things that we've, you know, consistently tried to to show here, especially reporting on like groups like Amazonians United is that there are also, you know, other methods that you can do for this and the like solidarity unionism that they've been doing, they've been able to get local results. Like they don't have a majority of the workers signed up for cards or anything. As, as we've talked about before, it's extremely difficult to do at Amazon facilities, but these workers are very militant. They do a lot of political education and they've done a lot of direct actions that have won immediate like win, like gains for the workers at these facilities. And mm-hmm. these sorts of solidarity actions 
are the sorts of things that just further continue to demonstrate to all their coworkers why that sort of an organization is impossible. So I think it's really good and really important to see these sorts of actions done particularly even when workers don't already have an officially recognized union. Because it's important to show people that it's like, you should fight for a union, every worker should have a union, but you, you do not have to have your union recognized by the company to be able to demonstrate for your rights as a worker. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we try to uh, hammer that one home every single time we talk about Starbucks, when we see the strikes of pre like people who go on strike before they have their union recognized by the state and the company. And uh, I mean, solidarity unions at these sorts of places are some of the only ways that you can organize without like a really massive campaign and huge investment of time like the ALU did where Chris Smalls is sitting out there every single day for months and months and months and months and months. Um, you know, that's, and, and hopefully in their building power, you know, that one day yeah. we may see an Amazonians United state recognized union. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a couple workers that were, who were a part of the walkout who were quoted said like one worker, Ted mean said, we are speaking up so that our coworkers everywhere can also come together and hopefully build the courage to also speak up and walk out. And then Vanessa Carrillo, who's an organizer with Amazonians United, said, it's not impossible to fight racism and harassment. Everything that we're doing is protected under law, so don't be afraid to speak up. And I think it's really, like, it's always so good when we see that, like, over and over again, like, these organizers understand all this stuff. Like, they, they know that, like, this sort of method of building power is a way to break workers out of the indoctrination that we're constantly left with that, no, you're an individual. You got to just do your own thing. You're competing against all the other workers. And that's the only way to get ahead is to put your head down and, and just do whatever your boss says. And, and that if you speak up, there's nothing you can do. And so it's really good to see these sorts of actions going forward because they help raise the consciousness of workers, both at the facility, but also like more broadly throughout the country. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Well, and to move to our next story, we've seen a, an attack on reproductive health in the United States, uh, especially for, well, for a very long time, but more in our like current moment than we have seen before with the uh, the Supreme Court say, preparing to get rid of Roe v. Wade. And, but we're going to be covering a, a slightly more under the hood way of undermining reproductive rights in the United States where planned parenthood uh well and this is this is we're kind of doing an older story to to lead us into what we're actually going to be covering as news here but uh there's a union that is attempted to being to be formed at planned parenthood but there's also a little bit of history that we need to to uh examine here because by the basically Planned Parenthood has done union busting before. And mm -hmm. and the idea that we can separate the workers themselves from being able to fight for their rights while still providing uh reproductive health services as well as other health services uh seems a little contradictory. And I think this is really a product of the privatization and and like kind of NGOification of our of our economy in the United States. And so uh 
600 workers at Planned Parenthood clinics in six different states have announced their intention to unionize over the past couple weeks since the leak of their upcoming Supreme Court decision uh, to gut abortion rights. 200 workers at four clinics in Boston, Worcester, Marlborough, and Springfield, um, Massachusetts, have uh, filed to join 1199 SEIU, which, if I remember correctly, is one of the good SEIU locals, yeah. which uh, already re- represented a thousand workers at Planned Parenthood clinics in northeast, uh, in the Northeast and Colorado. Uh, an additional 400 workers across 28 clinics in the Midwest, Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota, are unionizing with SEIU Healthcare Minnesota and Iowa. Uh, This branch of the SEIU currently represents Planned Parenthood workers in many states, including Oregon, Washington, and New York. So this is, uh, and there's a a little bit of an interesting story here. Yeah, so we've got these 600 workers that are organizing, and as you said, Lena, like, you would think that this is Planned Parenthood. They're like, they're on board with abortion rights reproductive rights they're considered far left by the right wing here even though you know they generally aren't but unfortunately uh like we've seen with a lot of liberal ngos just because they're like you know maybe progressive on certain social issues doesn't necessarily mean that they have really broken from capitalist ideology and planned parenthood specifically while they do incredibly important work like the criticisms that you know we're going to go through in here are about their leadership and their approach to their workers, not to the incredibly important reproductive health services that they provide, which are really absolutely. vital to millions and millions of people. Oh, and should be expanded, you know, frankly. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, the fact that this has to be done largely by an NGO and isn't just a part of every, like, part of a state health service is one right. of the fundamental problems with healthcare in the U.S. But, like, so just to go back in time to talk about, like, this issue that we've had in the past with Planned Parenthood back in late 2017, early 2018, there was a union drive at several clinics in Colorado to you know, basically respond to a series of closures of clinics in the Colorado area that were sending a lot of workers scrambling and being like, oh, well, now I got to either go work at a further off clinic or I got to find a different job. And so these workers were like, we, there's, we had no say in these decisions. We weren't just like, Nobody discussed them with us. So we really need a union so that if the, if Planned Parenthood has to close a clinic or something, they had, they at least have to talk with the union and we have, we have a way to come up with a plan to help workers instead of just leaving them in the lurch. And unfortunately, rather than Planned Parenthood, you know, voluntarily recognizing the union, bargaining in good faith, being like, oh, well, but even just being, we would prefer you didn't unionize, but if you want to, okay, that, that like, what you would hope from a, at least a neutral perspective, Planned Parenthood pretty much went full union buster. Like mm-hmm. they, despite the fact that a majority of the staff at these clinics in the Denver area signed union cards, they hired uh, Fisher Phillips, who are a union avoidance law firm, and forced workers to sit through captive audience meetings. They gave out flyers asking workers to vote no, and even claimed that the workers forming a union would be harmful to their patients. Like, oh, hey, look, it's that same rhetoric we hear from all the privatized hospitals. Great stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And so despite their campaign, the workers still won their union vote, 72 to 57, But even then, Planned Parenthood did not drop their anti-union 
activities. They challenged the election outcome with the NLRB, claiming that the election was invalid because the bargaining unit, quote unquote, excluded workers in other parts of Colorado, New Mexico, and, and Nevada, which... If you've been, you know, following our coverage of the Starbucks campaign, like every single time a group of stores files to unionize, the company kept over and over again being like, well, you can't just have these stores. You got to put all the stores in the bargaining unit so that we have a better chance to keep them from winning. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's really disappointing to see a group like Planned Parenthood that, that where the workers do so much important work treating their workers that way. And so like, Eventually, the workers in Colorado did win their union, and that's good. But that response set a pretty nasty precedent for an organization that is supposed that that does a ton of good work and supposedly is dedicated to the public interest. And so, I mean, in the recent filings with the unions, Planned Parenthood says they will respect their workers' right to unionize, and hopefully, given the current climate of what's going on right now that they're not lying about that and they won't stand in their workers way. But right now it's, it's a hope. I mean, we'll be following this to see how it goes. Hopefully they, they either voluntarily recognize union, which I think is kind of unlikely, or at least don't run an anti-union campaign and don't challenge the election when they Mm -hmm. end up happening. Well, I think it would be really a slap in the face at this current point when everybody, like there are a lot of people mobilized in Mm -hmm. this, this issue and to then come out uh, against the workers in the Planned Parenthood themselves to say that they are against the workers who are providing this care would be really just, just appalling in this institution that especially in these, these times of strife, we would be hope hoping to like uphold as like one of the actually progressive organizations. But uh, I mean, again, it's up in the air and that really, it worries me. I mean, even with the soft commitment from them uh, and even with, you know, the fact that they're not just like, you know, they're not no evil foods. They're not a company that just brands (laughs) themselves as being like progressive. They actually do provide a service where their everyday operations in the United States of America do help it be a better, less shitty, at least country. And to you know but if we've learned anything from doing this show it's that like no matter how forward thinking you are uh liberalism makes you inconsistent and makes you do weird ideological backflips to justify insane behavior yeah absolutely and so like just as we from these recent stores that have just filed over the last few weeks like we have some some testimony from some of the workers there so like one of the workers in Boston, uh, Barreo Otero, told Liberation News, uh, as a parent working for Planned Parenthood, I believe that reproductive justice doesn't stop at the door. Supporting working parents is integral to the mission of Planned Parenthood, which my coworkers and I tirelessly devote ourselves to. We stand united at the intersection of reproductive justice and labor justice, and I support unionizing with 1199 as a way to bridge that gap. Labor rights equal reproductive rights. Together we fight for all, end quote. Hell yeah. Like, that's what we're fucking talking about. And and it, I, again, I just really, I hope that, that Planned Parenthood does a little bit of, at least a partial about face on this one, and at least maintains neutrality. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to be not hopeful 
but my my <laughs> just get I get a little not hopeful in some of these cases. Sure. Yeah, well, and- I mean, the workers have concerns that we've seen from workers across the country in every industry before. It's unequal pay. It's high turnover. It's being burned out, and so they're hoping to you know get a leg up on those things in the collective bargaining process. You have a quote here from Sadie Brewer, who's a nurse at a clinic in St. Paul, Minnesota, and she told reporters, uh, "Unfortunately, I have seen many of these people move on after their ideas and concerns." went unheard by the executive team for far too long. Across our affiliate, both clinical and administrative staff are overworked, underpaid, and undervalued. So, you know, it's just basic, like, labor intensification and uh, lack of accommodation and overwork and shitty scheduling and turnover and everything we've ever heard before from every worker in the country. Yeah, and I mean, consider, like, how many places have we seen? And we see this a lot in the creative industry where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I mean, how, look, I, we know things are tough and everybody's getting kind of burned out, but the work we're doing is just so important. We're making such an impact. And that's really what we got to focus on. And it's like, so, because I'm sure that's the sort of thing that these people have been hearing, like these workers before they started this unionizing, because like, that's it, 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 what NGO brain does to you. This mm-hmm. idea that like, you 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 need to completely sacrifice your living conditions in order to push this organization forward regardless of you know how the management is making money and how like the actual pay structure is set up and so i it's i don't know this sort of thing is very frustrating so hopefully uh Planned Parenthood, the organization, their management, their leadership recognizes that now would probably be a pretty bad time (laughs) to be busting out your anti-union law firm in the midst of like perhaps the biggest, you know, crisis of reproductive health care in most people who listen to this podcast, including mine's lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I would hope that the momentum around this right now would disincentivize the management from from fucking with this, but we'll absolutely be, be following this. We'll be oh, tracking, yeah. you know, like if, if these folks are able to have their drive without it being, uh, confronted with a annoying, shitty, detrimental union busting campaign, like those workers in Colorado faced. But yeah, so imagine they we'll, spend thousands of dollars on a union buster when they need this money to be actually focusing on providing people, uh, you know, good health care right now. That would be yeah. one exactly. hell of a statement, uh, well, statement exactly. from the from Planned Parenthood. We'll 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 keep on top of that one. And hopefully we'll be reporting in a few weeks that, you know, at at best, the workers got their unions voluntarily recognized or at the very least that they were able to hold their elections without any sort of union busting campaign. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we'll see. I mean, yeah, all, I mean, all these workers absolutely deserve a union. They're doing incredibly important work and it's important that the people that are giving folks reproductive health care aren't, you know, run completely fucking ragged because they don't have any way to defend their, their hours, their, their pay rate, their schedules, all, all that stuff. So yeah, so solidarity with these workers. Well, it's almost like yeah. their their work is essential. <laughs> I wish there was some kind of neat way to say it so that people would be easily convinced to give them more money and better conditions. Yeah. Well, to move to our next story, we're going to be covering again 
PBS. Now, this mm-hmm. is a little bit different because this is actually one of the television show production uh, staffs. Uh, there is a show called America's Test Kitchen, which has ran on P- which has been run on PBS for over two decades, providing cooking tips, recipes uh, from a, from like a real test kitchen in Boston from people across the country who uh, you know, to, uh, for people across the country to watch and learn from. Uh, over the years, they have expanded to produce cookbooks, magazines, podcasts, and other media beyond the half-hour PBS show. But behind the this show uh, series, there's a real test kitchen staffed by real workers who have faced real exploitation. And so this past week, May tw- uh, on May 25th, over 100 workers at the test kitchen filed to unionize with CWA Local 1400 which represents other PBS workers in Boston. An overwhelming majority of non-management staff signed a letter demanding recognition of the union and better pay and working conditions. This is so interesting to me that uh, there are these really important institutions who don't have worker representation within them. And I'm really excited that these workers are are fighting for their union. Yeah, I mean... This is one of those things that I think is a really good window into the behind the scenes of, you know, how all this stuff gets produced, because I think there's probably a little gap or at least a distance in like the perception of maybe, you know, the staff working on, say, a show for like the Food Network versus mm-hmm. a show like America's Test Kitchen, which is on PBS. There's this idea, I think, that it's like, well, it's, yes, they're they're probably union or at least have better working conditions, but you know, these workers that are are struggling to unionize with CWA have talked about a lot of the same really tough working conditions that we've seen so many other places, like workers specifically talking about how the pay is often so low that they struggle to afford food, which is especially darkly ironic when you are working at a test kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, Afton Cyrus, a cook at the kitchen, said her salary of $38,000, so $19 an hour, just isn't enough. Which, uh, for people who don't know, Boston is one of the most expensive places to live in the country. So $38,000 is nowhere near a living wage for the Boston area. Like, that's not really a living wage for a lot of the country, much less Boston. And And Cyrus says, like, quote, there were times I could not afford groceries. I had to make choices in the grocery store about what I could and couldn't buy while I was developing recipes at work I could never afford to make at home. That's wild. Yeah. Like, working on a food program. And this is, we see this, I mean, with farm workers, but uh, where they, you know, can't afford food and they, like, literally, like, are the farmers themselves. Uh, But then even in this more, like, kind of, uh, production-y area where you'd expect eh, people's pay should be really good because, you know, it's it's high production. Uh, and still, people working in food, not able to buy food themselves. Yep. It's fucking wild. And these these workers are also fighting back against the other ways that employers will try to erode uh, the amount of money that you can keep in your pocket or, or the quality of life that you would like to have uh, because they also are calling for lower health insurance premiums uh, and they want efforts to fight structural in equities that lead to high turnover and understaffing. They want increased subsidies for commuting costs and transparency in hiring and promotions. That one's really, really key because a lot of places, you know, you hear stories all the time about people who've worked somewhere for like 19 years and they're making like 
$2 over base pay. Uh, and uh, they, workers have also described how lack of sufficient staffing has led to consistent overwork with regular 12 and 13 hour shifts to meet production schedules. It was, again, something we hear in all kinds of uh, film and television and entertainment labor stories. And we also hear all the time in places like fucking healthcare and teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting sort of like fusion with this, the test kitchen where Mm -hmm. you have that like production schedule pressure of like what stuff we were talking about with, with IATSE, but then you also have all of the devaluing of labor and stringing along people on whether there's going to be promotions or anything that we see in the restaurant industry, but fusing them together in this horrible melange, (laughs) a a, a shitty gumbo of uh, working conditions and oppression that these workers are facing. Um, And so these workers have managed to get together over two thirds of the non-management staff to sign on to the union, which, you know, basically, you know, you got your super majority already. And, So the kitchen spokesman, Brian Franklin, says that if the union wins the election, that they will bargain in good faith. But it's it's great to say that, but they still haven't voluntarily recognized the union. They're making them go through the motions of having the election. And they rolled out, you know, this same sort of language we hear everywhere else saying, quote, the management of the company is proud of the fact that it has worked with and been responsive to employees when they raise concerns, and it would prefer to continue to work directly and collectively with employees in the future rather than have to deal with a union on their behalf. I'm sorry. This one was so funny uh, just because they actually, instead of just directly, they said and collectively, yeah. but then they still third partied the union. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're like, we want to deal with you guys collectively, but don't show up in a union. Just show up (laughs) together. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, it... It just, that just doesn't make any sense. Like, uh, the, the rhetoric is goofy and the same sort of shit that we hear everywhere. And... I think one of the things to emphasize is that like, you know, he talks about how, oh, we've worked with and been responsive to employees when they raise concerns. And yet many workers in this story were reporting that they regularly have to rely on a leftovers fridge at the test kitchen, basically whatever's left from whatever they've been demonstrating on the show, just to be able to have enough food to eat. So I don't know how responsive you can possibly be if people are struggling to afford food. Yeah, and like the the thirty eight thousand uh, dollar salary figure should also show that they are not responsive to the yeah. actual living conditions mm-hmm. of these work of these workers. Yeah, it's like, oh well, when we founded the studio in nineteen sixty three, this was a great salary. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's yeah, I don't know, it's very frustrating. And so, uh, the union put out a statement saying, while the company has seen record profits in recent years, a significant percentage of us could not afford to work at America's Test Kitchen without supplemental income, either from second jobs, our families, or our partners. Many of us are forced to make continued sacrifices due to insufficient resources. We are forming a union so that we can use our collective voice to rectify these injustices and have a seat at the table where decisions are made. 
end quote. Yeah. Well, and that, that notion of like relying on your families and partners and second jobs, the, the second jobs is most likely not only for, uh, you know, people who have families and partners, but the people who don't. And, and this uh, yeah. reproduction of the capitalist family uh, apparatus is, is something that the capitalists rely so heavily upon so that there's like a household income and that's all put together and that's what determines whether or not you're allowed to live and eat and like to, to just like force people into those really really small uh units in order to survive is is part of capitalist reproduction but i, I just pisses me off so much like yeah. people should be able to, to survive even without those sort of conditions well and if they ever tell you if your workplace ever fucking tells you that like we're a family here be like oh cool a family will you co-sign my mortgage <laughs> oh cool yeah. a family will you help me will you take me to go buy a car you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah Absolutely. So solidarity with these workers at America's Test Kitchen. Uh, really hope that they're able to get their union there and we'll, you know, keep following that story. Mm-hmm. But to wrap up our stories for this week, we return as always to the, you know, just constant string of wins, victories, and general cool organizers from the Starbucks Workers United movement. Uh, as with Every week, there has been a ton of news. Once again, we've got strikes, we got walkouts, we got wins, we got like one loss, I think. Uh, we got all one, sorts in, of stuff. In, in total, like 91 unionized Starbucks at this point. A hundred. Oh. A hundred. A hundred. Oh, the tracker's behind. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's now, I have I have bookmarked like three different trackers now, and they none of them agree with each other. <laughs> um, but so... Starting off, we're going to start off with direct actions by the workers. And so last Wednesday, May 25th, the NLRB filed another complaint against Starbucks. This time for this is it's it's so funny to me that Starbucks just keeps breaking the most like the NLRA in the most obvious ways. Mm -hmm. Like there were this is because of workers at a store in Santa Cruz who were threatened with discipline for wearing pro union buttons on their aprons like the NLRA couldn't be more clear like there's you know there's wiggle room on other sorts of pro union gear it is very specific about buttons it's like you have to let your workers wear pro union buttons there's a lot of other things you can restrict but you got to let them wear buttons and still Starbucks can't keep themselves from threatening workers over it yes. Starbucks said no buttons. We're an Amish company now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you ever see those, those statements that companies are forced to put up, one of them is, yeah, they are forced to be allowed to wear pro-union insignia such as buttons. And I mean, if you look at the general, any synopsis of the NLR, of the rights the NLRA provides you, it is about wearing buttons. I just... (laughs) Yeah, the yeah. NLRA, it's a lot like that joke about chivalry where people are like, so little about it is about opening doors or like being nice. It's mostly about the code of battle. It's like well, the NLRA is like 80% buttons. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And so in addition to that new complaint filed against Starbucks, there have been a bunch of walkouts and strikes over the last few days, like especially this this weekend over Memorial Day where mm-hmm. workers took advantage of the holiday and everybody being out and wanting to get their coffee to say, hey, you know, this is probably the best and most effective time for us to use our collective action. So 
Starting off this list, and there's a bunch of these, uh, this Saturday, the 28th, workers at the Tumwater Drive store in Olympia, Washington, went on strike and held a rally for community support to stand in solidarity against the company policy of harassing and firing pro-union workers. On the same weekend, workers just up the road there in Seattle at the Westlake store there also staged a walkout due to cuts to hours and short staffing. So, you know, the problems that we've seen at basically every Starbucks store since the Union Drive started. Mm -hmm. And then also on Saturday, Saturday was a big day for actions. Workers at the recently unionized Market Street store in Leesburg, Virginia, went on strike over huge cuts to workers' hours and, again, often below the threshold needed for health insurance as part of the company's union-busting campaign and their policies of retaliation. Uh, They struck on both Saturday and Sunday, which were the store's busiest days, and they have opened a GoFundMe to help workers whose hours have been cut in response to their union drive and are now struggling with bills. So we'll make sure to link that GoFundMe in the notes. Yeah. Then on Tuesday, May 31st, workers at the Cleveland Circle Starbucks walked out to demand safe working conditions when their management demanded they continue serving food and drinks despite there being yellow water raining from the store's ceiling. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I saw the pictures of this this morning. It's really gross. It's (laughs) wild. Like the first photo is like, oh, it's a little messy in the room. And then they just like pan up to the ceiling and it's like not just like a drip drip. It's like it's raining. literally it's raining through the light fixtures. Yeah. It's, oh, nice. it's not Wild. like it's not, you know, clear water <laughs> that looks like, you know, this would be annoying and probably not particularly hygienic but not the worst. No, they, they collected some of it in a cup. It's fucking gross. Like it, I, you cannot be serving food in an environment like that. Even before you get into the problems of the workers just having to work in there, let alone beverages. It's a beverage location. (laughs) I mean, it kind of is like, I I, I kept wondering if anything was going to be grosser than the grease trap store. (laughs) And honestly, this might be worse. If, if I, you know what? They're, they're I don't even want to compare. They're, they're I, neck yeah, and but, neck. <laughs> <laughs> they're both really bad. Yeah. But yeah. So in addition to all of these strikes, all these walkouts, there have, of course, been a whole slew of additional Starbucks Workers United elections, I believe on the order of like 18 or 20 since uh, the last time we talked about this. So starting last Tuesday, the last day we recorded before this, the 24th, two stores in Ohio voted to unionize. First, the 6th Street store in Cleveland voted unanimously 10 to nothing in favor of the union and workers at the 88th East Broad Street store voting 8 to 4 for the union. On the same day, workers in Missouri got their first unionized store when workers at the East 80, uh, 38th and Arrowhead location, and I forgot to <laughs> note down uh, what town that's in, uh, sorry, but the, the, these workers voted 17 to 3 in favor of the union. One of the things that has been really cool just to like get in here is that there have been so many wins in the South lately, and a lot of them haven't, it's not been, the majority haven't been like, I don't know, 11 to nine or like eight to seven wins. They've been these big ass, like massive landslides, which is so encouraging to see. Uh, Like, so like we have this store in Missouri, then, you know, Portland got yet another store unionized there, their fifth store where their Milwaukee Avenue store voted nine to one in favor of the union. Then 
On Wednesday, we have a probable win in Tallahassee where workers voted four to three in favor of the union, but there is one challenged ballot, which if that ends up being counted and it's a no, then it will be a tie, which unfortunately due to the rules of the NLRA, a tie goes to the company. Um, Casino ass government. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's very much a, the house uh, usually wins sort of situation, but um, if that vote ends up being successful. If either that, that ballot gets tossed out or it ends up being in favor of the union, then that will be the, the fifth store in Florida to unionize. And on the same day, Chicago got their first two union Starbucks when a two stores in the Edgewater neighborhood voted 20 to three and 10 to one in favor of the union. So a couple more huge wins. And then continuing Wednesday, <laughs> yeah, it was Wednesday, the 25th was a really big day for, for elections. Yeah. There were five elections at stores in Philadelphia. Uh, we will see our first defeat or our only defeat for this week here where uh union was defeated 10 to four, uh, or I should say four to 10. Cause we usually do the workers, uh, and as the first note, but, um, at the, uh, uh, Callow Hill uh, Street Starbucks, uh, but there was only one election loss there. Uh, workers voted in favor of the union uh, 11 to 0 at Market Street, 7 to 2 at 9th and South, 10 to 0 at Walnut and 34th, and 10 to 1 at the Philly Civic Center, totaling 38 to 3 over those four elections. So fucking yeah. cool. And, uh, Beyond that, we finally make our, unless we missed one, which easily could have happened, we make our way to Thursday, May 26th, where Kentucky gets its first union store with the workers at the Factory Lane location in Louisville. Uh, They voted in favor of Starbucks Workers United, but we don't have the vote count for that one. Also on Thursday, workers at the Montview store in Knoxville, Tennessee, these are those southern stores Dan was talking about, became the city's second union Starbucks by a vote of 13 to 4. Pittsburgh got their third union store on thursday hell yeah pittsburgh when the market square location i've worked there voted eight to one for the union i've done a bunch of shifts at that store it's it's in a very nice location uh the movement and the the whole union movement got another huge win in the south on thursday when the first store in alabama the 20th and third location in birmingham voted 27 to one for the union that's, that's like 27 to one. Yeah. That is yeah. so huge. That's awesome. another gigantic Starbucks, <laughs> uh, which like that, that one was like a, like one of those, like where I'm like scrolling through my Twitter feed, looking at all the different Starbucks votes for the day. I'm like, hell, hell yeah. They got a win in Alabama. And then it's just like 27 to one. I'm like, damn, it's at a huge store in Alabama yeah. too. That rule <laughs> with a huge win. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah, well, Only the Ithaca manager managed to, to yeah. show up and ruin the unanimous <laughs> vote. Well, and I'm really happy about the uh, Market Square Starbucks, too, because Market Square is like a place where when people are visiting Pittsburgh, they often come there. And that might be one of the only Starbucks they go to in the city while they're there. It's one of mm. the busier locations. It's right downtown. So uh, having having one of those really big, really high sales volume stores in the city is is, is a really big win as well. Hell yeah. And so to close it out on Friday, Starbucks workers United managed to pass a pretty huge milestone when two more stores in Seattle voted to unionize first a store at union station won their vote six to three. And then East Lake Avenue became the movement's 100th 
union store and they did it with a unanimous 12 to nothing vote which hell is just yeah. hell yeah. everything that you want to see we love it folks like i mean this rules like it the the hundredth store being a unanimous win in the hometown of the starbucks hq mm-hmm. like you you couldn't script that better and then to for the 101th 101st store the there may have already been some others while we were recording but this was the one that I caught today, the 31st. South Carolina got their second unionized Starbucks, and that's a huge one because South Carolina is the least unionized state in the country. I believe mm-hmm. they only have 1.7% of their workers are union, and they've now got two unionized Starbucks, and this one is another unanimous landslide, 18 to nothing. Oh in my God. Favor of the union. So, so good. So incredible. good. I wanted to make one last point about the buttons. I would just be- <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah. We love button discourse. Uh, when when we were doing our buttons at, at our union, what we did was we actually had these like uh, the the company had been putting out these buttons that were supposed to promote the credit card that we were supposed to be pushing on people. It's this red button with uh, text in the center and the and then text going around the edge of the circle. And the mm-hmm. union button that we made was twice as big as that with the exact same design, but it said something like. Ask me about how Guitar Center has been union busting us. Nice. <laughs> Hell yeah, that rocks. So, so use use this the company's uh, imagery against them and make the button bigger. Make it big. Get use big buttons. <laughs> That's right. And so you know, I mean it. It may it may be becoming a bit of a like cliche to end the the show on the Starbucks note, but we keep getting so much good news out of it. It seems like a great way to transition into everybody's, you know, moment of comic relief for the week. The meme review. That's right. That's the, right. The whoopee cushion we put at the end of the shows. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not so serious all the time. Uh, I love this first one just because I have hate. I'll, well, I'll explain in a moment, but the, yeah. it's just a, a two tweet uh, little thing where it's like, what song y'all have no business singing when y'all was younger? Uh, and the the response to this is the national anthem. And <laughs> I feel Very it is so good. much because I feel like maybe it was like third grade or something like that because I had a military family and I, and I felt weird about this. But I did not stand. I was told I didn't have to stand for the national anthem. And right then and there, never stood for the national anthem ever again in my life but like i fucking hate that they force children into that yeah it's ridiculous i mean not everybody's smart enough like you know you and me and our cool friends were to realize that the national anthem is the perfect time to go to the snack stand that's right (laughs) (laughs) absolutely correct it's also just not a good song like when you look at like the list of all the different national anthems Sarge Mango Band is really far down. Like, just as a piece of music, very far down. It doesn't even slap. They tried to, like, get around the fact that it doesn't bang at all by throwing in some (laughs) imagery like, ooh, a rocket's red glare. Man, shut the fuck up. Annoying. (laughs) Annoying. Let me hear you go hard on the riff. Oh, there's no riffage? (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So... This next one we've got, this is like, so it's the Drake format, but instead of Drake, it's like the Babushka format. Uh-huh. 
I love so, the, I love her instead of instead of any of the other ones. I mean, there are a couple <laughs> different variations on this, but the babushka is one of my favorites because her eyes are closed in both of them, but the, you can yes. very clearly see the difference. But one of them is her kind of like ah, with her head tilted back, like in agony, and the other one is her like squinting and pointing at the at the camera. It's very nice. Yeah, like very excited. And so like the first one where she's like clearly in like a state of anguish is making school single exit with ex-military standing guard and then the the like there's the ticket version basically fully fund education and healthcare and put them under workers control yes babushka likes that (laughs) that's right yeah because we're actually gonna be out there like trying to protect our communities education and healthcare are one of the core things that reduce crime and honestly if we were to have a a a like a community or a society that supports people, we would see less violence like what we've seen in the recent shootings. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, mean, it's, it's, it's insane to try to, to, to pinpoint the one factor that causes the school shooting problem in the United States. But I think it's absolutely fair to say that like a big contributing factor is that our schools are fucking shitty. They're terrible places to be. And like people, start acting wild and getting violent when they're stuck in a miserable shit box all fucking day. Right. And this, I mean, obviously the one that the, the notable one is from an older person and, and like, but that's still, it's all like these systemic factors that lead up to this, not to mention the weird FBI angle, but I don't know if we well, want to get like, into that. Not to get too Foucaultian, but like the answer to all this is certainly not making our schools even more like prisons. Right. Which is basically what we're seeing so many people propose. Yeah. And like <laughs> the next one is in the same vein. This is, you know, this, I, I, this one is, this is a good meme, but I feel like this very much comes out of the like laughing so as not to cry sort of uh, yeah. Little edgy. type of meme. Yeah. Uh, where it's, it's a picture of a bunch of like incredible, like a bunch of cops in full battle rattle, basically completely armed up, just standing around outside of school doing nothing, uh, much like the school, the cops in Uvalde did. And it's just captioned, nobody wants to work anymore. Which, like, look, the events that happened in that school shooting, there's like no real way to have like a, you know, fun time out of it. But I think it's really important that we point out to people that it like if America, if, if giving cops money and having more cops made people safe, America would be the safest country. on and, earth. And we already tried it in Uvalde or however the fuck you say it. Like we, we tried that in 2020, they had drills where all of the police and border guard and everybody who's an officer of the law came together and became familiar with the schools in the area, did active shooter drills, sometimes in the schools themselves and were given money by the school and by the state to hire additional officers and buy more gear specifically to handle active shooter situations. And none of that did fucking anything except militarize the police more so they can terrorize us while there's not an active shooter happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's fucked up. We need less cops. Pretty much 
no cops really close, would be the yeah. ideal. I mean, they like cops kill a thousand Americans every year. They're not keeping any of us regular working people safe. So anyways, yeah. the moral of this is fuck cops. More cops are not the answer to this problem. Absolutely. And to get back to our roots on this, uh, we're going to move to our next meme, which is Spider-Man's pointing at each other. So many Spider-Man's pointing at each other. <laughs> yeah. Nine Spider-Man, but- seven. Okay. <laughs> Oh, it should have been eight. I mean, it, he's Spider Man. You gotta have eight. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. that's how many legs, right? <laughs> right. I was like, wait, but, why? Oh, I mean, right. I, I don't think it would have fit in the graphic. But yeah, so this is your is a modification. It's a it's a it's a variation on a theme of of the uh, the classic Spider Men's pointing at each other meme. But instead of three of them all labeled different cops or Nazis or whatever, it's all of the Spider Men's are all labeled unhappy worker and it's just captioned when you finally talk to your coworkers about your working conditions and realize you need a union yeah i mean this is like one of the strongest things uh and one of the most mind-bending things about workplace solidarity is uh it's really easy to go around thinking that you're the only one who's unhappy with a situation if you don't talk Mm -hmm. to anybody about it and then you talk to people about it and like a lot of times you'll find out they're even more pissed off than you are and you were all just being too polite to let each other know, stop being polite, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, like, because people certainly have the very understandable question of, like, man, how do I start if I want to unionize my workplace? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know how your worker, you and your coworkers maybe probably get together after work sometimes and go, like, to the bar and have a beer and, you know, complain about how annoying your boss is? Mm-hmm. That's the first step, really. It's not a big leap from there to... Man, you know, our manager, Chad, sucks. <laughs> Chad is such a dickhead. You know, it. what if he couldn't just be a dickhead and harass everybody all the time? Well, yeah, and you know Because we actually what? had a union. My paycheck was wrong the other week. Or, you know, oh, they denied me my vacation. Oh, you know, what about all those blackout dates? You know, there's so many different things that you can you can talk about and organize around. And honestly, I found that, one of the things that uh, has led me to helping the most people with starting the forming their union is finding a union to reach out to. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we highlight UE, the United Electrical Workers, the the Teamsters for a Democratic Union, uh, those sorts of things. Like, look into some of the unions in your area. Maybe give them a call, you know? Maybe maybe they have a little bit of insight, whether they can point you to a, a better local or, or something like that. But, uh, you know, having that as something that you can jump off of and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're all mad. You know, I was actually talking to some guy on the phone the other day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then this Absolutely. last meme just reminds me of, and this is only for people who have listened to the show for a long time, reminds me of that one time where I was doing the outro and I had taken a little edible in the middle of the the thing and i totally like fucked up the ending and then we kept it in anyway because it was kind of funny <laughs> <laughs> well this is a board meeting uh with a bunch of people sitting around uh you know looking at the someone talking and it says when your boss calls a uh, last minute friday meeting and you jump the gun on your edible well i didn't point out that one of the people at this table 
is Big Bird. <laughs> you are idea that, Big Bird. You are Big Bird. I love the idea that you eat an edible and you turn into Big Bird. Just like a really friend, like the one of the most friendly characters in the American canon of entertainment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this one feels to me like kind of the flip side of uh, another one that I think might be... Uh, John, I don't know if you made this one originally, the like Waluigi can tell that you're high at work. Yeah. That's my. He's al- just letting you know. That's my all-time <laughs> most popular meme. <laughs> I've seen <laughs> it's that. It's so good. Uh, I. So, that's one of those memes where I made it, and I no longer had to. Like, I don't have the original version that I made. So when I need a copy of it, I go online and I remove the iFunny watermark, even though <laughs> oh, I made man. the meme years ago. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, the 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 meme cycle of life. Yeah. <laughs> really. Yeah, like independent memer, mid-size account, um, Steve, and then iFunny and 9Gag. Yeah. (laughs) Shithead Steve, whatever his name is. Oh, Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's Scumbag Steve. Is it? There's a bunch of them, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, that is where we're going to leave it today, folks. Uh, Thank you for listening. Uh, If you'd like to support us, we are entirely listener-supported. We don't run ads. uh, And the way that you support us is by going to patreon.com slash workstoppage and giving us $5 a month. It gives you uh, access to all of our overtime episodes as well as our shop floor discussions. And you get stickers in the mail if you send me your address. Make sure to do that on Patreon. Uh, Another thing that you could do to help us out is write a review or share episodes with your comrades follow john on twitter at facebook villain follow the pod at work stoppage pod listen to beep beep lettuce listen to red game table and as always labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever solidarity out there solidarity everybody 